Hi, it's Lou. I just wanted to let you know what's new and what's still around for Square Pegs in 2022. The Patreon membership is still up and running. The address for that is patreon.com forward slash square peg round hole. And don't forget that W for the word hole. I really appreciate any contribution that anyone can provide to help me to keep this podcast going and to pay for some of the ongoing costs associated with it. It's very, very much appreciated. So thank you so much to my Patreon members as always. Something I did develop at the end of last year was a new website. On that website, there are podcast episodes, transcripts, there's a huge resource library, there's news and information on advocacy projects. The address for the website is squarepegroundhole.com.au. Speaking of advocacy projects, I wanted to let you know that I've been successful since starting the podcast in actually getting a seat at the table with the Federal Education Department. That is the Minister's Office and the Task Force that advise the Minister. So I will keep everyone posted on that work and thank you to everyone who is contributing to that. Many people know I have two Facebook groups or pages. There's a public page and there's a closed group. Please feel free to apply to join the closed group. It's where we discuss a lot of the episodes and some of the advocacy work that we're working on. And I just finally wanted to say it is my only ambition to speak on behalf of parents when I speak. I will never speak on behalf of any group to which I cannot represent with lived experience. I don't speak on behalf of neurodivergent people. However, I am very happy to bring neurodivergent people along to discussions and to share with us all. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you find it helpful. Thank you. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. Welcome back. Welcome back to 2022. I'm ready to go. Um, I've had a good rest. I really hope you had a good rest as well. It was not a fun year last year and I found it actually very exhausting. Um, But anyway, it's all over now and uh, we're having a fresh year and a fresh start. I hope it's been a good start for everybody listening. So I have some great guests this year and um, I cannot wait to share them with you. I've started recording and I've started talking to my Patreon members as well and getting some great ideas from them. If you uh, also have ideas for topics or episodes that you want to share with me, feel free to jump onto the Facebook group and get involved in the discussion. I've noticed we are having more discussions on there these days and I'm trying to share lots of really positive and comforting messages, I guess. Um, So I hope you're enjoying that little community that we're starting up there. So today, though, we're starting with another Lou. So we're going to have the two Lou's talking to each other. Today I'm talking to Lou Brown. I've known Lou for about five years 
And like Maddie Derrick, who was on our podcast last year, we go back to the start of PAAA, which is Parents for ADHD Advocacy Australia. I met Lou when we started PAAA. And that original group of parents could see that there was a huge problem with stigma and misinformation in the community around ADHD. Lou was already well on her way to becoming a well-known advocate and lived experience expert in ADHD, as she had received her own ADHD diagnosis when her son was diagnosed at the same time. It's a familiar story, and Lou is going to share her deep care for her community today. She's been involved in so many wonderful projects designed to assist ADHDers and their families, and she has a very unique perspective of lived experience and has had a very colourful, interesting life so far. So we're going to hear a lot more from her on that perspective. She's uh, embarked on a, a PhD, would you believe? So she's moving in a new direction these days, and I cannot wait to hear more about that from Lou today. Let's get on with it. Let's have our chat with Lou. Welcome to the podcast, Lou Brown. Hi, Lou. Nice to be here. I'm so glad you are here from one Lou to another. Um, Lou, let's start our episode with the icebreaker questions. I have some new icebreaker questions this year to sort of mix it up a bit and make it a bit of fun. Um, So let's get into it. What's your favourite animal, Lou, and why? Well, I know that my son would want me to say a dog and he'd be highly worried if I <laughs> if he heard me say, well, that's his favourite animal and I love them dearly. But I have a pet bird, a budgie, and he's my pride and joy. So oh. I would probably say my budgie is my, my favourite animal. Oh, I did not know you had a budgie. What's the budgie's name? His name's Billy. But why I love him, he's so frail and feisty. So he comes in, he'll sit on you and like come, you know, in my shoulder and stuff and he's got a real personality. But I love how frail he is and vulnerable to be. Like you could crush him in your hands, you know. Oh. And yet they're so confident to, you know, to be with you. But they'll also stand up and fight like nothing on earth and bite the hell out of you if they're not happy. So I like that about them. It's like that real juxtaposition and mixture of, you know, we want to be soft but sometimes we need to be tough as well. Or well, maybe he's like a mini you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> he sounds similar to you. <laughs> so beautiful. I just adore him. Oh, that's great. Excellent. And my second question for you is, Lou, if there is was one thing in the world that you could change, what would it be and why? Um, I guess I would like the world to be a more inclusive, loving, accepting, non-judgmental place that was, you know, just people that really knew what love meant and that people felt good about themselves so they didn't feel threatened and feel that they had to, you know, decrease somebody else's worth in order to feel good about themselves. I really love, you know, the world to be like that and I know that I've got rosy-coloured glasses but I still live my life hoping that that will happen one day and I know when I do my character traits love always comes up number one which is really gushy and stuff but I can't help but I do wish that the world was more like that and I hope one day that it will be. 
Oh, that's really lovely. It honestly is. Um, I do see you that way as well. That's That fits with you nicely. And um, I now was going to ask you a little bit more about you, your life growing up. I know there's a story behind you, <laughs> but other people don't know that. So can you tell us a bit about how you found yourself doing what you were doing today, you know, how you got here? Um, and what sort of connection have you got to the square peg trying to fit into the round hole kind of concept? I guess I was always the square peg trying to fit into the round hole. I actually remember when I was younger wanting to be like everybody else where other people were trying to be an individual and I just wasn't. Um, I was diagnosed when I was really young with having hyperactivity. Um, my parents were given medication, which is, I think it was um, genitoin, that they give to um you know, patients who have epilepsy and stuff to try and calm me down. And I was allowed to go mm. to, um, to kindergarten at three and a half to give my mum a break. But back then, they thought you grew out of it. They thought it was a behaviour disorder. And all the um, advice given to mum was all about strict parenting and stuff. And I basically grew up feeling like there was something wrong with me, that I couldn't, mm. no matter how much I tried, fit the mould. I couldn't be the... Um, Round, you know, fit in that round hole no matter how much mm. I tried. And I guess in some ways it broke me. I did um, think very little of myself. I was always in trouble. Anytime I wasn't in trouble, if I was trying really hard to be what they wanted to be, I was like this anxious thing. But as soon as I relaxed and was who I was, off with the fairies and having a great time and chasing my interests, then I was in trouble again. So I grew up not feeling great about myself. I ended up, when you look at the trajectory of people with ADHD that often happens, I was one of those kids that um, had social problems. I um, had a lot of, obviously, confidence, self-esteem problems. I started drinking quite young. Um, I developed an eating disorder. Um, I had all the financial problems and car accidents and all the things that um, are a risk and I didn't want to be here anymore. Um, and I still, to this day, when I talk about it, feel myself tear up and I feel for that little girl so much that it drives everything that I do now because I do not want any other child in this world to ever feel the way that I did about myself. And so over the years I kind of tried to start... Um, loving myself and, you know, be kind and do that and was a really massive journey. And every time I looked into whether, you know, I, you know, I still had hyperactivity and stuff and in my 20s it still said you grew out of it in the stuff that I had um, accessed because I was in the UK at the time. And if I was in Australia, maybe I would have found out that it did exist, but I was in the UK and it still the information said it didn't. So I just, um, you know, kept going along in my life, making lots of mistakes, but also doing things that I loved. I mean, I got, I had a great career as a nurse, as a senior nurse and, and things like that, but there was always something that I couldn't, I don't know, I'd have foot in mouth, I'd do something wrong or I would, and I was always, um, I got more and more anxious and always worried about mistakes I was going to make and, and it, I don't know, it was just really really hard and then my son um, started having 
um, some challenges. I knew that when he was younger, he was he didn't sleep. He was um, very demanding of attention, couldn't play by himself. He was gorgeous, had a lovely heart and stuff, but it was just really hard. And then when he um, started kindergarten, the question came about, um, you know, whether there was something going on. And because I had separated from my ex-husband at the time and he was moving back and forth, the messages I kept getting were that, it was because of you know instability in the home and stuff and I thought to myself I don't believe that for a second because Jack is like very secure in feeling loved we are really close there is you know they say that you need to be you know parent their kids and da 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 but I thought no one is doing as much as I'm doing to try and help my son it's not working and eventually I read about ADHD and went oh my god I'm so sure that's what he has so I asked the school to do an assessment and then went to the GP and the GP referred us to a pediatrician and at the same time she asked me whether you know I had ADHD and I said well I, I don't but I was diagnosed with hyperactivity as a child and someone said that's kind of the same thing and she said it is and it's highly likely you've got ADHD too so she sent me off to the um psychiatrist at the same time and Jack and I were both diagnosed. So that was the paediatrician that said that to you? When... No, the, my GP, I've got a fantastic GP, she said it to me. Jack went to the paediatrician, I went to the psychologist, obviously I was at both appointments and we were both diagnosed and then I literally fell apart. I was so scared that um, Jack would have my old life and that it was inevitable kind of stuff that that went hand in hand and I felt so guilty that I'd given it to him and and all this stuff and then after I mean I was so bad that I would go to the shops and I'd just start crying and I had to come home like I just was an absolute wreck for about a month and my partner Ian was really worried because I just couldn't function and I went off to see a psychologist and then I just processed it and went you know what, that's not what has to happen. This is going to be different this time. I'm going to learn every single thing I can about ADHD and I'm not, you know. Which is very ADHD of you. (laughs) It is, isn't it? This is not going to happen. I'm going to make sure that he has a different outcome. And, yeah, that's what got me started on this journey. And I guess my first stop was um, ADHD coaching because there was no other way in. I was a nurse at the time. I'd been nursing for over 17 years. I had had senior positions where I had run, you know, three departments at one stage. I was working as a clinical nurse specialist of wound care stomal therapy and I could not get a job in nursing um, in the ADHD field. So I left because I just obviously became my passion and ADHD coaching was the way in. So that's how I started interesting yeah it's there's so many parallels between that story and well I feel my own story but also lots of other people that I talk to you know there's similarities and then some other people have obviously different experiences but it's a familiar story in a lot of ways (laughs) and it's definitely a journey I know that um like I had all this emotional experience that was um, really scary as, as in, well, that's not the right word, but 
I struggled with thinking that, you know, what was going to happen to Jack. But at the same time, for me, it was a relief because I knew that all these things I've been told that, you know, was lazy and selfish and all this, that it actually wasn't true because I knew always in my heart that I was always this nice person who valued love and stuff. I just kept getting it wrong sometimes despite trying. And so it made me feel like it's okay. It's easier to go. I've got a disability. I've got ADHD that I'm, you know, there's a reason for this. Yes, it's so yes. much easier than thinking that there was something, you know, wrong with me as a, a person and it was my moral, you know, what's the right, what's that word, you know, basically, your, you know, my heart. values or something, yeah, my, yeah. yeah. That was much easier. Um, and then taking medication, well, that was in itself really exciting, really positive and really horrifying at the same time because all of a sudden you could focus and concentrate, things were easier, but you were hit with all this self-awareness which is extremely painful because all of a sudden you can control your thoughts a bit more and and um, stuff and, all, and that, you know, self-awareness really made me feel really anxious and I withdrew from a lot of my friendships I reassessed a lot of stuff um I didn't go back to some of them and because I just felt that I could never be what these people wanted me to be because now I realized who I was and I needed to work out how I live my authentic life as me but support myself support my challenges or scaffold myself so um, I decreased those risks and things that hurt me that I you know and and I could function, but also use my strengths so I could do the things that made me happy and I could, you know, keep contributing to the world in a positive way. So it was this really big metamorphosis kind of journey that, you know, when I thought it was over, something else would hit me. I remember once when I really had thought it was, you know, that I'd got to the other side, um, I was doing something I won't say what I was doing but someone said to me please don't do that again and I didn't you know consciously think I'd done anything wrong I'm still not quite sure I did but having someone said that to say that to me I went home and I cried because I knew that I could never promise that I can never promise you that my brain isn't going to hijack me at some time that I'm not going to see the big picture that I'm not going to be able to you know sometimes I can't pause when I'm really passionate and emotional and that was like having to really come to terms with this is what my disorder is, that how do I put myself in a position where it's least likely I'm going to do that but still love and hold myself and treat myself compassion if I do and know that it wasn't me doing it because I was a bad person, it was doing it because sometimes I can't regulate as well. Yeah, wow. Well, I've been thinking and writing down a few things as you've been talking there Um so you mentioned that in the early days you were basically, it sounds to me like you were fairly traumatised or at least in a definite state of shock for a long time, worrying, then having the experience of taking the medication and how that's kind of like a bittersweet experience and then learning about this ability or challenge around pausing um, I've heard you talk about that before as well. And I think those key things um, a lot of people listening will relate to. I think um, the other thing is you're also explaining a story of when you were younger, something was there and you could see it. A lot of people don't don't even sort of 
can cannot reflect on anything like that. For example, myself, I, I look back and it's not as obvious to me. It's become more obvious to me as I've gotten older. And there's definitely a lot of women um, and men, obviously, but, you know, women like us who are um, starting to recognise things in the whole life experience and in their developed understanding of ADHD and what it is. Um, you mentioned those early days and months after Jack and yourself received the diagnosis and you've talked a lot about how that affected you, which is really important for people to hear. I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot of comfort from hearing that. At the same time, though, you were worrying, as you mentioned, about your own child, and I can relate to that. What's going to become of him? How's he going to go in life? You know, you, it, there's a lot of doom and gloom when you first get the shock of it, isn't there? So can you tell, talk a bit more about how he has, you know, obviously keeping in mind his com- the confidentiality around his identity, but, you know, how has, he, how has that developed for you as a mum to somebody who, you know, how old was he when he was diagnosed and, and what's, what's that been like for you as a mum to help him? How is he these days? Um, Jack was seven, seven and a half. Um, where do I start? I'm just going to mention, just back to medication, that Jack transformed in front of my eyes when he took medication. It was like a lot of the things that I needed to do or to support him was no longer needed and that he had actually taken on board all the, I don't know if the, the moral, ethical kind of value things that I had taught him and stuff and was displaying them all back to me because he actually could reach them or access all that information in that moment because he could pause and stuff. So, and that very much helped protect his self-esteem because then he's not always in trouble, not always hearing those things. And although I tried very hard not to tell him off, they're so super sensitive that you just say, you know, the odd thing, you know, just calm down slightly, please, honey, and, and like, you know. So... Um, that was a really important factor in all of it. What I had learned from my old life was that the only way you can fit a square peg into a round hole is by breaking the peg. And I refused to do that to my son because that's to me what had happened to me. And I still didn't fit. So I was not going to tell him off for things that were Um, outside of his control I chose to see his heart and focus on our relationship and getting the outcomes like it was really important to me even when Jack was like in my tummy I would say that all I want is my son to have a big beautiful heart it was really Mm. important to me that that was the type of child that I raised and that our relationship was more important than anything else and that no matter what I wanted him to have his self-esteem intact and to feel good about himself and to know that he was loved regardless, which is that's not how I felt, you know. So I basically focused on those sort of things. Tried to always, I guess, what I call set him up for success and ourselves up for success and really think about, you know, what's going on. If something happened, what was behind it? How can I actually guide or nurture or prevent or lead him in that direction without conflict, without making him feel bad. Because I don't believe that, um, well, I don't think telling kids off with ADHD gets you anywhere except, you know, breaks it as your attachment relationship and, and stuff and really does harm. But it doesn't mean that he's got ADHD that I can't have high expectations of him. I expect him to have beautiful manners. I expect him to behave, you know, 
um, appropriately. I expect him to respect his elders. I expect him to, you know, to do his homework and to do stuff. But the way I get that from him is completely different to the neuro, what I would call neurotypical parenting or the ways that you are taught to parent a neurotypical child if you are struggling them to get to them to do stuff. That approach does not work. It makes everything worse. And initially you came across this sort of approach which it sounds like it was fairly instinctive. It was. It was based on that's what was done to me, I'm not doing that to anybody. And it instilled that fight in me to change that. So right from the start when I started coaching, I um, disagreed with the usual parenting information that's based on operative conditioning techniques um, right from the start because I knew that you couldn't punish the child having an ADHD. You can't punish the child to get them to do something they haven't yet developed the ability to do and you can't reward a child to do something they haven't yet the ability to do either. It doesn't work. So you have to meet that child where they are at and scaffold and help them. And because they have got an interest-wide brain, you needed to connect. Like when he was little, I used to make everything fun. When we would get dressed before school, we'd come out into the lounge room with our clothes and put music on and dance together and get because we are protecting our relationship because our attachment relationship is everything as well as getting the outcome. And then as he got older, I talk um, a lot about to him about you know our values and things and those things help to guide us so we have this brain that really likes novelty um and that's like really um has a massive impact on our ability to regulate and do things but in that we also have interests that we need to foster and one of my interests like I say is like um making love the most important thing in the world or doing what I can to change the outcomes. And when I'm attached to something from within my heart on a deep level, it's amazing what mountains I can move Mm. because that provides the interest to keep going. So I use that kind of attachment thing to get the best out of Jack. I guess um, that's what can I just say that sounds to me like you used the strength of your own ADHD to help you to be a good parent it's like in a nutshell that's pretty much what you're saying and you know I heard you just say my interest I used my interest to help me to to make it fun for my son which was then making it interesting for him as well and making him able to do something I really had to um I wanted because I had a nursing background research was always really important to me so when um, we were first diagnosed all the information I read it wasn't enough I was really a bit annoyed with the books that I picked up and stuff because I wanted more and more and more and I literally had to go to the research and then the research is in such silos that I went outside necessarily the limited thing to find more and it was important to me that what I thought thought was right from my own experience actually did align some way so I just knew it wasn't my point of view it was also that you know if you look at attachment theory and all that stuff it's very obvious that maintaining your attachment with a child with ADHD needs to be a one number one priority and unfortunately it doesn't always I mean it's it's some parenting approaches talk about you know that's what it is but it's not really because just because a child looks like they're being compliant at the moment when they're really young that doesn't mean that you're attached later and 
or that they're not going to be damaged by that compliance? Because if you get a child, say a child does something all the time because that's an expectation of them, when you remove yourself out of the situation, they don't do it anymore. But if you build in them the desire of being important, then when you leave the situation, they continue it. We'd go to the shops and go, Jack, did you hear that person when they had their lovely manners? Those kind of people make me feel really good and you want to, and you see that person was really rude. It makes that person feel really horrible. I don't, you know, how do you feel when that happens, blah, blah. And instinctively, he now values our manners. And I can tell you now, for a 13-year-old boy, he's got the best manners of everybody that I know, and he's got ADHD. Yes, and yet the stigma attached to to a diagnosis of ADHD does not immediately put a beautifully polite, well-mannered young person in many people's minds, sadly. It doesn't, and... The ADHD doesn't make you naughty and stuff. It does help make you seek interest, which sometimes is the only way you can get interest and um, stimulation is by doing something naughty or provoking, then, yeah, that's what's going to happen because they've actually got no choice. They need, their brain is going to say, we need this dopamine. But it doesn't have to be like that. It's you can, you know, help mould them. It doesn't, don't get me wrong, my son has ADHD, he has significant anxiety. We had a pretty tough year last year because Jack was at a school that he didn't fit. It was too big for him. It was very overwhelmed. Um, and it didn't align with our values, which he found really difficult. Um, and thankfully we're changing schools this year and and stuff so don't think that Jack doesn't struggle no of course not I don't yeah got a good basis of being a great human being he feels unlike I did he feels loved attached secure at home he feels confident safe safe Mm, um yes and you know whereas by that age I wasn't sure even then I wanted to be alive so very different experience. It never fails to surprise me how the instincts around behaviourism are, are there for us as parents, even though we may not really know what it is that we're seeing um, or how we're understanding what we are being taught about our parenting. We both realise, and I know there are others as well who, I mean, I know, I looked at some of the things around um some of these instructions to parents around essentially a behaviourist response towards parenting and also while they're at school and it just felt wrong to me because I just thought you cannot surely expect to teach neurotypical behaviours to a child who is neurodivergent and who sees and feels things differently and has their own um, neurology that that exists um and it yeah you what you've just described is very much um along those lines I think where you could see it early on so let's move on now and talk um more about where you went from there now I know you're no longer providing a ADHD coaching service but you did go into that field didn't you can you tell us about why you decided to go down that pathway and equally why you decided to stop and redirect yourself to something new and exciting sure um I did mention before that um coaching basically was the only option to work in the field um so I went and I did the coaching course it was in the US so I did it at home and it was like it wasn't I still didn't think that I had learned enough about ADHD I was a bit disappointed with that um the knowledge that that imparted but the coaching information was fantastic and um, 
I had already completed wellness coaching things, thinking that maybe as a nurse I could move into um, that area when I knew that it was going to be hard to go back to working in the hospital with um, Jack needing me at home. So I had some kind of grasp on what it was and that idea. Um, and then I guess I started offering coaching services um, to adults and to parents. And it became really obvious to me, important to me along the way that if you didn't understand your ADHD or you didn't understand your child's ADHD, you were on the back foot straight away. The ADHD robs you a certain amount of self-awareness. And if you hadn't been explained ADHD in a way that you could really internalise it, where you could see, you know, and interpret it, what was happening and what possibly could be the contributing reasons why, you weren't empowered enough to be able to work out, well, what do I need to be able to help or support? Or if I'm making a decision as a parent, how do I know it's the right one? Because maybe I'm misinterpreting what's driving what I'm seeing to start with, which means that I'm going to have an inappropriate response. So it became really important to me to work out how to um, understand and explain ADHD in a way that um, made it more understandable, that you could get inside the diagnosis, that you could think, okay, if my child is going to his, their room and you've asked them to get dressed and they go in there and you walk past and they're not getting dressed, what's happened, why? So if I understand that, well, they've got poor working memory and they've got an interest-driven brain, so by the time they've got there, they've probably forgotten what they you know, they were asked to do. Then they've seen a toy and their brain's going to immediately go, I want dopamine, that's what I'm going to go and do it. So if I tell that child off, I'm telling them off for something that they weren't meaning to do, that they actually have no control over. So how do I then get, you know, that child or my son dressed and ready in a way that had a positive result? And so then I started running um, workshops for parents on understanding ADHD and the parenting stuff. And then um, I developed, I did it quite early on, a parenting, um, what I call the five C's, um, parenting framework with listening with empathy. And eventually um, a researcher um reached out and said I like what you're doing there's no research on this I think it's really important that um, it is researched because you know when we look at the evidence-based guidelines and things like that they all have to be research-based and so at the moment they're going to continue saying that that parenting approach that's been used all this time that appears you know from what some of the evidence not to be really giving the results that you want is going to stay being what's recommended unless somebody um, does the research and shows otherwise. I've always been very, um, right from the start, advocacy focused. Um, I've not ever really been, um, I was a career person when I was in nursing, but since my diagnosis, everything that's driven me has been more about advocacy and wanting things to be different. I want systematic change. I want a new paradigm on the way we talk about, understand, assess, treat people with ADHD. And I came to realise that the only way that I was going to be able to push for this change that I wanted was by entering academia, that I was able to move from making it sound like this is just my opinion to be able to go, okay, so this is what all the evidence says, which happens to align with my opinion so 
Right. Okay. So your parenting approach, you mentioned the five C's and the listening with empathy. I've done your workshops in the past and, and read your material and it's all really helped me as well as I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of you through that before. What do you think was different about your parenting approach to what we're calling the traditional approach? When you refer to the traditional approach, do you mean the kind of carrot and stick type approach? What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, it was very much about, well, to me, a lot of parenting approaches were about control, that, um, you know, that the aim was to get compliance in a child to do what they wanted to do so they were um, easier for the parent to, to look after. Um, and what's the downside of that approach? It certainly becomes like a fight when you've, I mean, the easiest way to get a child with ADHD to become opposition is, oppositional is to argue with them. <laughs> you know, it's just... Um, and if you're already feeling different and you're in trouble all the time, was my experience. So don't doesn't help you if you've got a if you're born with a disorder and no one helps you to understand it and all you're being told is that you need to you're wrong, you're wrong, you've got to do this differently and da da da, you can't learn to take control and to do anything differently because you're not being taught, you're just being crushed constantly. It became really important to me that we fostered in children and adults with ADHD this self-awareness so they could really understand their disorder, this self-acceptance of who they are so they stop wanting to compare themselves to others, that they realise, you know, these are my strengths and these are my challenges, you know, that's just what they are. No judgement around them of being positive or negative. That's what I've got to use in my life. How do I do that? fostering you know self-compassion and then the knowledge and skills that they need to kind of scaffold their challenges embrace their strengths so they can navigate life in a way that's positive they can protect themselves from harm and I guess they can contribute to society in meaningful ways so that drove me um and the way that I looked at it and I um really thought about you know how do we foster this in children and the starting place is always going to be with connection because that attachment relationship is everything. And that's one of the C's, connection? Yeah, it is. The, the first C is connection, which is about, you know, focusing on your relationship with your child, spending one, one, one time with them, you know, letting them know you love them, helping them when they're struggling, um, supporting their emotions and things, entering their world because nothing tells a kid that um, you love them if more than, one, listening with empathy, which runs through the whole thing, and two, entering their world and sitting on the ground with them and playing in their world where they're the boss for once rather than, you know, you being always in the lead. The second C also helps with that connection and that's composure. So if we want our kids with ADHD to manage their emotions, to, um, you know, kind of when, you know, they can be really emotional and can really struggle, but if we want them to behave differently, we have to role model that. So if we're not managing our own emotions, how on earth do we expect our children to be able to do that? And the messages they're getting all the time when we lose that composure crushes their self-esteem and um, and their desire to even want to behave in a, in a certain way. And often maintaining my composure is, like, really important. 
which is I know people say that it's hard when you've got ADHD but it's not hard for people with ADHD to do things that are really important to them and that are really interested in so if you make sure that you're really connected to that value and to that that thing that is really important to you you can you know it's amazing what we can achieve and they, you know, we've all heard that saying where um, children with ADHD, it's believed, receive 20,000 more negative messages than neurotypical children by the age of 12. They pick mm. up on everything and I don't want to add to those messages. And I can add to that message by snapping, by not controlling what comes out of my mouth, by saying anything that, you know, Words that were said to me, things like, oh, you're just being so selfish, you know, um, you don't think of anybody else. How on yeah. earth is that going to help, you know, someone yeah. be a better version of self? You can't make a child behave better by making them feel worse. Yeah, and the next thing is compassion. Mm-hmm. So it's accepting that your child has ADHD, loving them regardless, listening and you know especially with empathy and showing compassion when they struggle validating their feelings and experience there's nothing more damaging than you having an experience as a child and people writing it off as being or you're just over exaggerating because that's not what that child is experiencing and it's like saying to them I'm only going to love you and spend time with you if you are like this So then they Mm. learn to, you know, hide stuff or they develop more shame around, you know, these experiences they're having and their their interpretation of what's going on and that can only do damage. So Mm. be really compassionate, listen with empathy and I'll explain that in a second and be there. The next thing is collaboration. So when you actually have connection, composure and compassion, you actually can open up teachable moments in which you can help children understand their ADHD and slowly learn to, you know, put in place some strategies to help themselves kind of thing. So it's using basically a coach approach in lots of ways and and I guess it's trying to help them to understand themselves but not in a way that is negative and not has to be at the age-appropriate kind of level. So... You know, Jack is, Jack's got very, very self-aware when it comes to his ADHD and how it affects us and stuff. But that's empowering, but not in a way that it crushes him. So I might, I remember we were driving to school one day and he'd forgotten his pens. And he had these special pens because he has um, dyslexia and stuff that he likes to be able to, even though it's pen, he can rub out something. And so he was really anxious. that we'd, And so I said, don't worry, mate. It's not very far. We'll turn around and we'll go back and get them. So we went back up and stuff. And then in the car, I said to him, so, mate, what do you reckon we could do to try and um, prevent having this challenge before so we don't, you know, you're not stressed out and stuff? And he couldn't really come up with any ideas. So I said, oh, let's problem solve some together. What if we got extra pens so you always had more in, you know, some at home so you didn't have to get them out of your bag? Or what if we did this and this and da-da-da? So just trying to show him there were lots of other ideas and then he picked which ones he wanted to do. So by collaborating with him, he realises that there are ways that you can scaffold things to try and prevent happening and learning from them in the past that we don't need to, you know, judge and get upset with ourselves. Everybody makes mistakes. It's not a biggie. What can, you know, we do? And so always trying to bring them involved. It doesn't matter how old they are. They often understand themselves 
really well and what's going on for them. And it doesn't work if you go, uh, what, what's an example? My son's always misplacing something. So from now on, I'm going to put it in here and tell him he's got to do this, this. That's not going to help him remember because he's had no buy-in or emotional attachment to that's not necessarily on his radar. Whereas if you talk to them about it, about, you know, why it's important to them and what they think they can do and would you like some support in making this happen? Because there is a developmental delay. So if you don't um, offer a certain amount of scaffolding in a way that doesn't make them feel bad about themselves, and you know, that they are going to fail unless you change the goalposts. And the last one's consistency. So doing it over and over again, praising and rewarding behaviour. I avoid punishment at all costs. It does not work, just severs your relationship. It does not teach someone who hasn't got the ability to do something how to do it. Not in the slightest. And there are so many broken adults out there with ADHD. You know, it's easier to lift and, and raise a well-adjusted, you know, self-accepting empowered child with ADHD to become an adult with ADHD that has those characteristic traits than to fix a broken adult and we need to stop that and I think it's important that I, I do explain that listening with empathy goes through the whole five C's and listening with empathy is about listening pausing quietly listening to the you know what your child is saying from their point of view mm. um, listening not just to what they're saying but how they're saying it and what they're not saying acknowledging and validating their experiences with, while we reserve judgment and don't give advice and you can listen with empathy without condoning behavior and now some people listen with empathy but they don't do it for long enough you have to stay in that space long enough for them to get it all off out of there you know and to feel and sometimes you think you think it's over and it's not over <laughs> you so you've really got to give them give them every possible chance I've been there yeah <laughs> and once you get there yep. you can you know if you say they've done something that's you know we've deemed inappropriate and stuff and you've listened with empathy and say oh that's really tough I know that but this just it's not going to be appropriate when you're feeling this way to do this. People aren't going to understand something could get broken. What do you think you could do differently? They go, oh, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to, because they didn't. But you've got more chance then of going, well, okay, so what can we do? How can we support you, da-da-da, of changing their outcome than just snapping at them? And sometimes when they're, you know, young or even as teenagers, sometimes our job is to not put them in those positions to start with that they're not quite ready to, to handle. Yeah, it's a two-way street, totally. Wow, very interesting. Yes, well, I, I know my, my experience as well is that, that those strategies are so effective and um, I hope that people listening, you know, can feel that um, that that's there as a framework for them to look into further. So um, uh, you're using this um, framework for your parenting approach in your new life. Can you just briefly tell us about how you're going to research this or what, what does this actually mean in real practice? What's going to come out at the other end, Lou, from this? Hopefully a validated parenting um, education program that if I um, can get the funding will be free, accessible for everybody to use, I, I, that... Um, will change those outcomes and protect the self-esteem of 
you know, children with ADHD. So the um, PhD process is very long and complicated. The first thing I have to do, which I'm still um, doing, is writing a literature review because I have to what's you know what are the outcomes of kids with ADHD what could be affecting those outcomes kind of thing what do we know about the disorder because if you don't the education as far as I'm concerned about ADHD is lacking greatly um, and nothing will change unless the education changes the research component is that I um, will be um, interviewing doing semi-formal interviews with um, a group of parents about what kind of um parenting what would be like the format and all that kind of things is likely to um get the best engagement and to help the most as well as then piloting like doing the first research pilot of the developed program so although I've got a program it won't look exactly like that when I finished because although what I started with was very much based on my experience as well as research because that's always been like a driving thing for me it will be adjusted and will be very much be able to back it up with research um, because that's really important to validate it and things um it's very hard to explain because it's such a complicated Yeah, no, that's course. okay. And probably we shouldn't go into too much detail because people don't need to know that. It's really just understanding what's coming and that, and having some um, excitement around something, as you say, that would be validated and um, would be there to the ultimate aim to improve outcomes for young people, children and young people with ADHD. For now, it's just taking on board that kind of approach like the five C's and what we've talked about and avoiding ADA, avoiding operative condition of like rewards and punishment. I mean, rewards to a certain degree can be effective, but you give a child with ADHD a reward, five minutes later that's gone. If you've actually got connection that and their love for you and you think that doesn't wear off in five minutes, you know, like there are parts to it, punishment never kind of stuff, but taking that approach now and knowing that even though the there is um there's no like research articles out there that someone's collating the evidence to back it up there is the research to back this up and to say you know um yeah the other way doesn't work and it's I mean all of it is um it all pushes boundaries slightly so even when in my PhD when I look at in my literature, the understanding ADHD, that has implications for not just the parenting program. The whole way that my PhD has been designed is so that, you know, that information then can be extrapolated and go, well, this is how we could teach teachers to understand ADHD a bit better. This is how we can understand, pet help, you know, adults with ADHD to understand themselves better. So it's so it's, that's why it's complicated and really hard to explain. Yes, to explain, but it has benefits in, in multiple domains. It yeah. was to me, it's, all of it is an advocacy project and it was important to me that all of it could help in some way move systemic change in a different direction. And all the little parts of it um, provoke conversations and things and it's open doors for me to be invited onto the board of the ADHD Professionals Association, to be invited to be, um, 
you know, consumer advisor to Deakin University, the ADHD research group. So we're pushing for participatory research because a lot of the ADHD research in the past has been not had consumer input. There are some things that I, you know, don't necessarily agree with because I think that the research has been conducted in ways in which don't mimic real life. So then you're not going to get the same results and that's really evident now when we look at what's going on in the autism area so a lot of the research in ADHD is is not really reflective of real life oh very interesting okay and you mentioned ADPAR what does ADPAR stand for the Australian ADHD Professionals Association they are a professional group that consists of academics psychiatrists psychologists ADHD coaches, OTs, paediatricians, GPs that all have an interest in ADHD and the board is responsible for the development of the ADHD clinical practice guidelines that will hopefully be released this year to make sure and push forward for evidence-based practice, for educating. Obviously, we understand that not everybody in the community nearly understands ADHD. So their, their role is to, you know, improve understanding. They're involved in a lot of research and stuff, but all basically of trying to improve the outcomes of people with ADHD. And I was invited to be on the board as a consumer representative to ensure that the work that they do aligns with consumer needs and what we deem as important Participatory research and having inclusion is quite a new phenomenon and part of that, even though I'm talking about in the research field, it enters into like having someone like myself on the board that then can say, well, that's actually not the experience or this is not what people in the community are talking about or have you thought about this? And so trying to drive or help foster you know, principles in working in this area that align with, consume, you know, with what consumers feel is important that validates their experiences but also takes on board their experiences because you can learn so much from them. We should be learning from adults with ADHD what works and what doesn't work with raising children with ADHD. Um, it's one thing to ask parents who say, well, you know, I'm not having it, it's not that hard at the moment, my child's being compliant. That's not actually telling you what's going to, going through that child and how that's going to affect that child later on. We need to be tapping into, you know, adults and their experiences and learning from them. We can learn so much more understanding about the disorder, factors that help have positive outcomes versus negative outcomes. And I can tell you right now, from even from experience, people like me had terrible outcome because we didn't have feel loved and you know accepted and that attachment was broken where some people with ADHD as adults feel really great and happy and content in self because they felt loved and appreciated and they were okay so sometimes when people question whether they had ADHD often they felt loved and you know exactly or compare themselves to someone else we're all individuals and you know I only have to look at my own two kids (laughs) Both have ADHD and they are the most different personalities and different behaviours exhibited by both of them. They're just completely different from each other. So just. But if you feel loved and supported, you come out the other side feeling good about yourself. 
that's the most important thing. Yeah, but you can still have ADHD. Absolutely. <laughs> or, I mean, or, or you can be any neurodivergence. Yes, exactly. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. In fact, with aging and since menopause, it's got ten times worse. <laughs> I know everything changes over the lifespan. I know it's just a, such an interesting experience. I think we're getting towards the end now. I mean, I was going to ask you. I usually ask everybody about their mentors and books that they like to read about what we've been talking about because I have a website and I do put some resources on there and share those sorts of things with listeners and put them in the show notes. I don't know though, how do you feel about that given your experience you've just talked about? You know, you sound like you're on a new adventure anyway so for, for the reasons <laughs> that there hasn't been much around. So so what do you, what do you think? I don't feel like I have any books that I would recommend because I feel like a lot of that information is lacking, no one's fault. I just don't think it's been looked in that way and that's, you know, one reason I'm doing what we're doing. When it comes to mentors, I don't have mentors as in I've got, how can I put it, I've got some people that over the course of standing up and going, no, I don't agree with this, I think things should be different, that I've developed relationships with that have influenced me and vice versa that have become like, I can't say they're mentors, we're kind of like um, our support system. One of them will say that I'm her, you know, that she feels like I'm her mentor, but I feel like she's my mentor. So it's like going on a journey together. So I've got some people like that that um, are gently pushing the boundaries with me and, um hoping for change in this paradigm shift that I've talked about and you you have a more of a mutual relationship by the sounds of things rather than like listing off a whole heap of academics or something yeah (laughs) and they will like I can I'll question you know their perception of something they'll question mine and through that will grow well I am very excited to hear what that's going to be and um thank you so much for sharing your history but also your future <laughs> with us because it sounds like you've been on, we've all we're all on this journey but you know you sound like you've had a real you came to a fork in the road and you've made your choices you know over time and you're now moving in a, a brand new exciting direction and so we'll just keep our eye on you Lou <laughs> and all I can say that your kids with ADHD are beautiful and just love them just love yeah. them and accept them for who they are. Help them be their best self. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Thank you. Know? you. We will. We will, won't we, everyone? We will. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. Um, couldn't agree with you more. I absolutely live and breathe ADHD, as you know, <laughs> since I met you. So um, we're all doing our bit and um, appreciate what you're doing and cannot wait to hear more in the future. So shall I sign us off? Yeah, lovely to talk to you, Lou. Yeah, you too, Lou. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. 
Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Kushel. And remember, just be nice to one another.